Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening and God bless. Hello friends, welcome to the podcast. We will be hearing from various passages in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, which will be starting at the beginning of the audio clip. The sermon today is from Christian Kuhn, the uh, co-founding pastor of Urban Village Church and the site pastor at Urban Village Church South Loop. We had just some minor technical difficulties for a few moments, and we'll be starting just a few seconds into his sermon today. Thanks for listening, and here is this week's podcast. These are the words of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. I also know that you don't put up with those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles but are not. You have shown endurance and put up with a lot for your for my namesake, and you haven't gotten tired. But I have this against you. You have let go of the love you had at first. Change your hearts and lives and do the things you did at first. If you don't, I'm coming to you. But you have this in your favor. You hate what the Nicolaitans are doing, and which I also hate. If you can hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Revelations, Revelations 2 verses 8 through 11. Write this to the angel of the church in Smyrna. These are the words of the one who is the first and the last, who died and came back to life. I know your hardship and poverty, though you were actually rich. I also know the hurtful things that have been spoken to you by those who say they are Jews. Don't be afraid of what you are going to suffer. Look, the devil is going to throw some of you into prison in order to test you. You will suffer hardship for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. If you can hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Write this to the angels of the church in Pergamum. Pergamum, there you go. (laughs) These are the words of the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you are living right where Satan's throne is. You are holding on to my name, and you did not break faith with me. But I have a few things against you, because you have some there who are fallen of Balaam's teaching. In the same way, you have some that, who follow the Nicolaitans' teaching. So change your heart and lives. I don't. If you don't, I am coming to you soon. Write this to the angel of the church in Thyatira. These are the words of God's son, whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine brass. I know your works, your love and faithfulness, your service and endurance. I also know that the works you have done most recently are even greater than those you did at first. But I have this against you. You put up with that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. 
As for the rest of you in Thyatira, those of you who don't follow this teaching and haven't learned the so-called deep secrets of Satan, I won't burden you with anything else. Just hold on to what you have until I come. If you can hear, listen to what the Write this to the angels of the church of Syracuse. These are the words of the one who holds God's seven spirits and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, and you are in fact dead. You wake up and strengthen whatever you have left, teetering on the brink of death. For I found that your works are far from complete in the eyes of my God. So you receive and heard. Hold on to it and change your hearts and lives. If you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you won't know what time I will come upon you. But you do have a few people in Saratus who haven't strained their, their clothing. They will walk with me clothed in white because they are worthy. If you can... Write this to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. These are the words of the one who is holy and true, who has the key of David. Whatever he opens, no one will shut, and whatever he shuts, no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have set in front of you an open door that no one can shut. You have so little power, and yet you, uh, yet you have kept my word and haven't denied my name. Because you kept my command to endure, I will keep you safe through the time of testing that is about to come over the whole world to test those who live on earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. If you can hear. Church in Laodicea. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. After all, you say, I'm rich and I've grown wealthy and I don't need a thing. You don't realize that you are miserable, pathetic, poor, blind, and naked. I correct and discipline those whom I love. So be earnest and change your hearts and lives. Look, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If any hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to be with them. If you can hear, listen to what this spirit is saying to the churches. My wife and I have two children. Uh, now one's a junior in high school, the other is a seventh grader. And so our collection of children's books over the years has gotten a little bit smaller. But any parent, I'm sure, has memories of reading books to their children. Some of them were their favorites. Others, if the child wanted to read the same one over and over and over again, maybe not so much. But we have those favorites in mind. One of my favorites uh, was a book about a little pig slash little girl named Olivia. Any fans of Olivia in the house? Yes? Uh, for those who don't know, um, Olivia is, uh, again, a pig, uh, kind of a human slash pig. Uh, and the adventurer, she's probably about eight or so, and her family... Uh, one of the things I love about Olivia is the way that she wants so much to be an individual. So I have a couple of examples here. So if we could put up the first slide, you can't really see. You can see a little bit of a picture of Olivia there on the left and her mother there on the right. This is from 
uh, the book uh, Olivia and the Missing Toy. And so on the left, she is saying to her mother, she says, Mommy, can you make me a red soccer shirt like this one, please? And then her mother says, but then you'll look different from everyone else on the team, explained her mother. And then in the lower right-hand corner there, Olivia says, that's the point. I always want to add an exclamation point to that. So Olivia says, that's the point. I want to be an individual. I want to be my own person. When I was a youth leader working with youth, uh, high school youth, many, many years ago, one year, we had this T-shirt. And on the T-shirt, we put Romans 12, 2 on there for these youth. And so, Larry, if you could put this up. This is Romans 12, 2 that says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It was a message that we were saying to these youth, but I think it is perhaps a message for all of us still here today. How can we stay true to who we are, like Olivia? How can we stay true to who we are? How can we stay true to our faith in a world that at turn, at every turn, tries to conform you to what they say are the norms of society. How can we stay true to who we are, who God created us to be, and to our faith, when so many pressures in our world want us to conform to what they say are the norms of society? Well, we are starting a new sermon series today called Called In and Called Out. Some of you know that every year we do a sermon series that particularly focuses on our commitment to being an anti-racist church. And I'll explain a little bit more later what that means. So we are looking at this through the lens of the book of Revelation, as you probably picked up earlier. And so we'll be exploring Revelation uh, over the next few weeks. And we should say how indebted we are, again, to Jeff Myers and for his work uh, he gave all of us site pastors a really wonderful plethora of notes about Revelation. So at least some of what I am saying today, we can give our hat tip to Jeff. Uh, and you can learn more from Jeff, I understand, next week uh, after, after worship. But let's take first a, a look at the book of Revelation. Um, any fans of Harry Potter in the house at all? Yes, a few? Good. Uh, I want to show you a brief clip from one of the movies and I'll explain what this is later. But for those who know Harry Potter, we're going to be looking a little bit the first time Harry confronts the monster book of monsters. All right, let's take a look. Good sense of it, Larry. So whenever we look at the... So the monster book of monsters was a, a book that was assigned to Harry for a class called The Care of Magical Creatures. And as you can tell, it was a little hard to open because the book would kept trying to bite the hand of the one who was trying to open it up. Sometimes I wonder if the book of Revelation feels like the monster book of monsters to many. Because when you flip to the very end of that, I mean, there are all kinds of really interesting, intricate ways of describing symbols. And so for people who try to read it, it might seem a little intimidating. <clears throat> or you may have someone who tried to interpret it in a way that really wasn't the purpose of why Revelation was written in the first place. So I can understand why Revelation may not be on your top ten books of why I love the Bible. In fact, some of you may know who Martin Luther is, heard of Martin Luther. Martin Luther didn't really want Revelation in the Bible at all. So we can see here 
some mixed reactions. And yet, and as I'm sure Jeff will attest, there's some really wonderful things that can come out of the book of Revelation 2. Revelation is usually assigned to an ancient uh, literary genre called apocalypse. And often apocalypse is a first-person narrative when the author relates one or more visions about the future or a heavenly world or both. And as we go through Revelation over these next four weeks, we'll be looking at a lot of symbolic language, symbolic language not to be taken literally, and yet there are deep messages underneath that symbolic language. So we learn early on in Revelation in chapter 1 that was written by a man named John who wrote it from an island called Patmos. So if we could put up there the map, let's take a look at the map here of what's going on. This first, if you can see here, if you remember from the scripture that was read earlier, there are some of the cities. So if you could get a close-up of this, we can see here all of the cities that were read from earlier. These are all churches that are in these cities. You can see down in the southwest corner uh, of this slide is Patmos. Patmos was an island about 37 miles or so southwest of Ephesus. Patmos was an island that was used as a place for political banishment by the Roman Empire. So John, he tells us, is writing from that place at Patmos. And then we can see, as we read today, chapters 2 and 3 are messages given to the people in these churches in all of these different cities here. And they are written with each community and context particularly in mind. There's a specific thing that John is trying to tell each of these churches. So, for example, you might say that when you look at all the different sites of Urban Village, those of you who've worshipped at the different sites, you know that, in a sense, there's a little bit of commonality, and yet each has its own unique flavor, too, and context. So someone might be writing to Urban Village and says, to my brothers and sisters at Hyde Park Woodlawn, and they would say, I'm sure, all kinds of wonderful things about what's going on in Hyde Park Woodlawn, and then at the other sites too. So what's going on here is John is sending messages to each of these churches. Now, each of them has a distinct message, and yet, as Jeff noted to us in our notes, there is much to be gained by looking at all of these as one and seeing some commonality in all of these messages too. So for example... Four of the churches are urged to repent, or in the translation we read today, to change our hearts and minds. And there are other ways of holding all of these things together, too. But as I was reading through all of these different messages to these churches, what struck me was that they are all facing pressure to conform to the society around them. And they are being constantly tested and tempted to go away from their first love in Christ. And so they'd be encouraged to be faithful to that first love. John uses all kinds of ways to encourage, to chastise, to affirm, and to tell them to listen to the Spirit and don't abandon your first love, Christ. And yet there are so many different temptations that are at, going at these churches. So when we talk about the temptations that we face in our own world today, we are specifically looking at churches, and we're looking at this at the lens 
uh, these temptations and what it means to be an anti-racist church and through the lens of race and racism. We see examples in society all the time when it comes to the issue of race and how others are asked to conform to what are conceivably the norms of society. Emily pointed out just earlier about we saw and have seen the temptations or the pressures that are being placed on football players and others to stand for the national anthem, bow at the flag of nationalism, do not take a knee. That's not what you do. And as you try to explain to them, well, they are not protesting the flag per se, they are protesting racial injustices, others do not want to hear that. And so there's all kinds of pressure for them to conform and to stand and see the national anthem in a certain way. And we see, too, for churches and how they deal with the temptations the society puts on them when we talk about race. So let's take a look, for example, at what happened at Charlottesville a few weeks ago. All kinds of churches, and I saw this, too, on Facebook and all kinds of social media, all kinds of churches, thankfully, were speaking out against white supremacy and speaking out of what was happening in Charlottesville. So now the question is, what steps will churches be taking the Sunday after that and the Sunday after that? These are all good, well-meaning churches that are thankfully, again, speaking out against white supremacy. But then the challenge is others saying, that's good, we did that for a Sunday, now let's just go back to living our lives like we always have. There is pressure, I think, for churches. Just go back, even well-meaning, good, progressive churches. Just go back to the way things have always been. And it's easy to conform and to give in to that temptation. And yet, at Urban Village, we feel like we are called to something else. Again, I've used that phrase, anti-racist church. And what does anti-racist mean? We throw that around. And there are really three components to anti-racism. The first component is this, that we are in an active process of identifying and eliminating racism. An active process of identifying and eliminating racism. Now, I think most people would say, yes, that sounds great. We're on board. If that means anti-racist, we are with you. But that's not all. The next part of anti-racism is this. Then we begin to change our organizational systems and structures and policies and practices and attitudes. And this is where people might slow down a little bit. Change processes, change structures, change attitudes, change all of these things. And like, well, let's go back to that first thing again, shall we? And then that's not all. And then the final piece of anti-racism is that we do all these things so that power is redistributed and shared equally. And that's when the pressures to not go that direction really begin to put on you. Because that means, particularly for white people, we have to share power equally. Speaking as one who helped found this church, this whole process has been a huge learning for me. Because when you first started church, you make a lot of decisions, as you might imagine. And so on this journey for Urban Village, when we want to be an anti-racist church, that means that I have to begin to step back a little bit, sometimes a lot, 
in order to live into this process of being an anti-racist church. Now, I lift Urban Village up by no means saying that we have arrived. We will be sharing some of our findings of an audit that we've done over the last year, and you will see from this audit, we have a lot of work to do. We have not arrived at all. But we do this in the hopes that we begin to start and continue this process of being an anti-racist church, even though there will be all kinds of pressures to say, just go back to the way things were before. And this is what happens to churches, too, I think, when they begin to start this process. It, it's uncomfortable. And so it's easy just to say, I don't want to deal with the discomfort. Let's just go back. Let's go back to what we did before. What's been helpful for me throughout all of this and thinking about this is a, a book that I read recently and a walk that I, that I took a few weeks ago. So the book was The Blood of Emmett Till by Timothy Tyson. Some of you may have read this book. Uh, hopefully you know who Emmett Till uh, was. If you, if you don't, Emmett Till was a 14-year-old boy, grew up in Chicago, was sent to stay with some relatives one summer in Mississippi in the mid-1950s. Emmett one day went to a store and was accused of whistling at a white woman. Not much longer after that, two men came to the house where Emmett was staying. They essentially kidnapped Emmett, and then a few days later, he was found brutally murdered. We may know the story then at his funeral in Chicago, Emmett's mother, Mamie, decided to keep the casket open so that pictures could be taken, and that really was one of the most formidable photos ever taken in the civil rights movement. So I knew that part of the story. What I didn't know was what happened in the process for all of this to take place and the pressures that Emmett's mother went through. So when Emmett's body was found in the river, the sheriff at that time had said, let's just bury him immediately. This was a white sheriff, held all kinds of power in that county in Mississippi wanted him buried immediately so that there wouldn't be a lot of attention given to what was going on. And then what happened, too, at that time, he went to a black uh, <clears throat> owner of a funeral home and encouraged him to begin this process, too. Let's just bury him immediately. So they started this process. In fact, they dug the grave there in Mississippi for Emmett's body. Word got back to Emmett's mother, Mamie. And she did all she could from where she was in Chicago to make sure that that burial stopped right there. Now, again, there are all kinds of pressures on her to just conform, to just do what was expedient, to do what the powers that be in Mississippi were saying should be done. But she refused to give in to those powers. All along the way, they finally were able to get Emmett's body back to Chicago and there was a scene where Mamie was there at the casket, and all kinds of people were around her saying, don't open the casket. You don't want to see what's in there. But she kept insisting that she wanted to see her son. And then when she talked about an open casket, that made no sense because of the condition of Emmett's body. And the funeral director said, well, let us at least begin to help touch him up a little bit. And again, she refused because she said over and over again, and here is a quote in the book that says this. At one point when the body was there in the casket at the train station, and Mamie said this, I told him 
that if I had to take a hammer and open that box myself, it was going to be opened. You see, I didn't sign any papers to have him buried in Mississippi, and I dared them to sue me. Let them come to Chicago and sue me. And they would continue to go to her, and she said, no, let the people see what they did to my boy. A few weeks ago, I learned, as I was reading about this, that the church where Emmett's funeral was is at 4021 South State Street, not too far from where I live. Emmett is buried in Alsip, Illinois, at Burr Oak Cemetery. The church to the cemetery is 14 miles. Emmett was 14 when he died. So a few Saturdays ago, I decided to walk the distance from the church to the cemetery to just pray, to do one of my favorite authors, Brian Stevenson, says to, to get proximate to your city and your neighborhoods and just to take in all that was there in front of me. And I kept praying and I kept thinking about Mamie. Mamie was the one who kept coming to my mind. And the courage the unbelievable courage that she showed when others were saying to her, let's just bury Emmett in Mississippi. Let's just keep the casket closed. Let's just keep this quiet among family. Time and time again, Mamie pushed back against those powers that would say, conform. And she said, no. The world needs to see what has happened here. The world needs to see the evil that has been done to my son, Emmett. And because of her courage, a movement continued to be born from that time. And so on that walk, when I finally made it to the cemetery, I don't know if you've put up yet, Lair, the, the two, uh, that's Mamie's, uh, where Mamie is buried at the cemetery. She's not too far from where Emmett is buried. And I just, most people will go and they'll be at Emmett's gravesite, but I just stood there in front of Mamie's gravesite. And just prayed that somehow the courage, even a little bit of the courage that Mamie showed, could somehow come to me. And that, I think, friends, as a church, as individuals, is what we should also be praying for. The courage of Mamie Till Mobley. Because when we begin and start this process of talking, what does it mean to be the kind of church that cares about these issues? that seeks to change our structures, to begin to share our power equally. What does that look like? And then others, again, will push against us. Even people within our church may push against you. At times you may think it sounds like I am pushing against you. I will confess that to you. But let us pray for the courage, the courage that was there with John when he wrote those churches, the courage that those churches that early Christians showed to withstand the pressures of society, the courage that Mamie showed when making sure the world knew what happened to her son. This is the courage that we will need in order to live into this calling that we believe God has placed on us as Urban Village. We need the courage of all of you, not just myself or Emily or other leaders, it is the courage of all of us to be able to live into and speak that truth, even when others speak out against us. So, reflect on that question this week. Will you join us in that process, that messy, messy process? Will you join us in that process? And will you join us in asking for that courage 
to live into this way that God has called us to be. Let's pray. Holy, loving, and gracious God, we give you thanks for the witnesses, for the ancestors, for the mothers and fathers of our faith who have shown tremendous courage in living into the way of Christ, of living into the way where power is shared with others, to live into the way where oppression is lifted up and spoken out against and defeated. We pray for this courage, Lord, that you give to us so that we can be the kind of church that you've called us to be. Amen.